Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Well, congratulations. You're having quite a year. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, for real yeah no that's great it's uh fantastic yeah i actually had to change my little list um i i subbed in goonies for um inner space because it felt like (laughs) sucking up Uh, (laughs) that was hearing a lot of sam cook's music for the first time on on that film both cupid and i'm twisting the night away yeah yeah my god Interspace and Animal House. Those were the two movies where it's like Sam Cooke music really. Yes. We thought it too. <laughs> this is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Thank you so much for joining us. You must be exhausted from doing all the. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, I'm definitely kind of Walking Dead is is my, my <laughs> normal, but but you know what? It's a light. It's it's a good problem to have, and I'll be this time next year. I'll be like, no one wants to talk to me, so it'll be, <laughs> <laughs> it'll be fine. Um, I I think I can tell this story publicly. I I um. It's still one of the, the boggling conversations of my life. I remember walking out of the uh, Oscar ceremony of the year. I, I I went up and Steven Spielberg and I are both waiting for our limos to take us to the Vanity Fair party, and he was up for I think Munich. Oh wow! And he had he had not won. And uh, Spielberg goes, he's like, yeah, it's great. He goes, but tomorrow the phone stop ringing. <laughs> and I looked at him and I'm like, mine maybe. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, his phone doesn't stop him. I think I think you're going to be all right there, Steve. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if I believe him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, no, thank you for joining us. But we are here with with Kim Powers, who's um, uh, God, just having a terrible year. Um, <laughs> what are you, the writer and co-director of Soul, and the writer of um, One Night in Miami, for which you got nominated for an Academy Award the other day. Uh, congratulations. Well deserved, I might add. Richly oh, deserved. Very much. I, um, I will tell you, and as you know, we don't talk too much about your work here, and that's, that's probably a nice reprieve for you. It for really is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all, all I do want to say is, is we went to, um, whoever was doing it, the screening was arranged at the Rose Bowl. They did a drive-in for one night in Miami. Oh, and, I was there. Oh, were you there? Oh, it was fantastic. And, and Nancy and I, we were literally like, I've been wanting to see the film. I was like, I don't care what it is. We're, we're going. I need to get out of the house. I've been in this quarantine. And we went off to the film and we sat there and they ran a Q&A beforehand with the actors. And I remember having this moment of, because, you know, I'm, I'm old enough that all those guys, I was aware of all those guys as a kid. And some of them were like heroes to, to me and my friends growing up. And it's like, I mean, come on, Ali and, you know, 
Jim Brown, especially like, you know, cause we were not political when I was seven. <laughs> uh, you know, I knew who Malcolm X was and we love him. And I'm watching these four guys do the Q and a, I'm just like, shit, man, they don't, none of these guys look a thing like these. Oh, this is going to five minutes into the movie. I couldn't remember what the real guys looked like. They <laughs> somehow did such an amazing job of embodying those characters. Um, and it's a terrific film. And it's an amazing script. And um, yeah, no, uh, it did such an incredible job. I mean, the actors you you yeah. said, I mean, they they really transformed. Um, um, and it's more than a physical transformation. Like yeah, they, they yeah. really embodied each of the those characters in a way that. I mean, I couldn't have been happier. Uh, I'm really super proud of it. And you never get the sense that you're claustrophobic because, you know, because it is, after all, all, you know, basically taking place in a hotel room. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of like 12 Angry Men in that way. I mean, you don't, you're, you're, not a, you're not as aware of the surroundings as much as you are of the characters. I am so happy you said that. I swear to God, Joe has not looked at your list, and now I have to cop to the fact that I have. But yeah, do you want? Should we jump in? And um, oh, that's, <laughs> since, that was since number one on my list, <laughs> Joe has inadvertently given us a segue into uh, the movies that made you. That's why I'm here. <laughs> um, but yeah, do you want to? Do you want to? Let's talk about Twelve Angry Men. Yeah, I mean that was the the template, right? I mean, look, they're the. It, it's it is kind of funny that people you know whether you like the film one night of Miami or not there was often conversation about like well obviously it's based on the stage because of the confined space and i and i and it's interesting to me because i actually remember there are lots of hollywood used to have kind of a, a habit of doing confined space films and 12 angry men is is kind of like the the watershed film for me i mean it was that film that even though it was in the 1950s Pretty much anyone who went to public school can probably remember the first time they watched 12 Angry Men in a classroom. That's where I think almost everyone I knew yes. first mm -hmm. saw the film. And it was also notable in that it was one of the first films that we saw in the classroom that, you know, we grumbled because it was in black and white. And then by the end, we were like, wow, that was pretty goddamn incredible. You know, yeah. like, it says fifth grade temp or sixth grade temp. And yeah. so... You know, it, it, it shows you, I consider 12 Angry Men one of the best films ever made. And it shows you, um, it's, it's a battle of ideas. Um, and, and that's what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to kind of show this, this battle of ideas with men who represent very different things. And it came from wanting to recreate the excitement of 12 Angry Men. And that's the word I use to describe it. Like, okay. Everyone in this court, everyone in this jury is like, this guy is guilty as sin, except one guy who's just like, I don't know, I'm not 100% convinced. And the fact that over the course of that two hours, this one guy convinces everyone else to switch their vote. I mean, it's, isn't that, it's like a masterstroke because he, he convinces everyone else, including you, the viewer, you know? And, and, and I, like, that's what I really love is when, you know, an audience member has a, a strong point of view and a character in the film can force them to change that point of view. So, you know, it, it, was I trying to do a black 12 Angry Men? No, not necessarily, but I was definitely inspired by that. That film really stuck. And of course, that's why if you, let, you either love courtroom dramas or you don't, you know, and I, I'm a fan of courtroom dramas. I, I love, you know, a, 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 you know, a few good men, um, you know, I, I yeah, I, I love them all, but but again, this is a courtroom drama where you're not even in the courtroom. The court, yeah, exactly. The, the 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 jury room, and 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 it's only recently that I saw that I've seen anything 
that paid such great attention to being the jury process. And it was actually the TV show, um, American Crime Story, People versus OJ. Because there was yeah. an entire episode of it devoted to selecting the jury mm-hmm. in yeah. the Simpson trial. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's probably selecting the jury to avoid exactly what happened in 12 Angry Men. It's really something. So that was very, it's one of the earliest films I remember seeing um, that I didn't want to see that right. I ended up enjoying. Because when I was young, you know, the movies that I saw were movies that I wanted to see that because it was movies my sisters wanted to see. So I think going to the movie theaters, um, the, the earliest memories I have going to the movie theater were probably The Empire Strikes Back, um, E.T. and Gremlins. Those were three films that I just like specifically remember, like we went out to the movie theaters to see that. But, but yeah, 12 Angry Men holds a special space. Yeah, it's so funny because when I saw your list, I was like, oh, it, it, I had not made the connection. And I did instantly when I saw it. But I love that Joe made the connection without even seeing the list. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's an amazing thing. And yeah, I did. I, I guess we all did have that experience if you're uh, of a certain age of uh, having a teacher drag it out and um, uh, showing it to you. And, and that, that moment, a few minutes in, when you realize, um, oh, this isn't, this isn't going to feel like homework. This is actually. Yeah, this is better than being in class. Yeah, that's it's such a great film. Um, did I wonder, did you, did you study, um, like have you read Lamette's book and so forth when you were when you were going to direct? Uh, was he one of the people you looked to or no? For me, um, I mean, I, I read a few I, actually, I did, I, I think I did read that, one. yes, but for the most part, I my my entry into this business was just reading scripts. I'm, I'm, I'm like a voracious reader. So there's actually another film on this list that is the film that got it. people. It's so amazing how the time we're living through, because when I say this out loud, it sounds insane. But like in the nineties, getting a movie script was hard. Like you had to go probably to a film library um, at a yeah. university. It's true. It was not, it was not easy to get that kind of stuff before yeah, the internet. It wasn't online. So, you know, when I saw, I, I, you know, when, when I, the, I just, the, the, the one screenwriting course I took, it was actually, I was a journalist in my former life for 17 years, and I was taking a sabbatical year um, at, in, at University of Michigan for a Knight Fellowship, and that's where I studied screenwriting. In that year, we were deconstructing a script. Um, it was Alexander Payne's um, About Schmidt, um, which, which I didn't put on my list today. But for because of the uh, because again that was a that but that script remains like one of the finest scripts I've ever read and and at the time that I remember reading that even then we're talking in the early aughts getting a hold of movie scripts was hard but I remember the first film that made me like okay I need to read this I need to see how this is executed in the page because based on these screenwriting books that I've read this doesn't make sense was Pulp Fiction. Um, <laughs> I, I saw Pulp Fiction. It did not seem to adhere to the fucking Sid Mead rules and all. Did everything things. wrong. Yes. <laughs> it, it like not follow any of the rules in the instructional manual books that I've read on screenwriting. Oh, so I was yeah. like, okay, I got to get a copy of this script. And I remember, I think I got it at a comic book convention because there was one booth where the guy had movie scripts. Um, and I forgot. At the time, it seemed like an exorbitant amount of money. 
that I paid for this Pulp Fiction script. And I'm sure if I look through my house and through the boxes somewhere, I will still find that marked up copy of the Pulp Fiction script. And that just like, I've seen Reservoir Dogs and really enjoyed it. But there was something about seeing that movie that drove me to want to see how it was written. And, I can, and, and, I, and that was the first time that's ever happened. And that's actually kind of been how I operate as a writer. I, when I see something that I really enjoy, I want to see it on the written page. Because to be perfectly honest, when I'm watching movies, I'm just seeing the screenplay anyway. You know, like in my like, it's, it's a weird kind of thing where I'm watching the movie and I'm just like, I'm seeing the screenplay. It, it's just like, a, so when I'm watching a film and I don't immediately see the screenplay, I want to go out and read the screenplay. Um, right. And a great recent example of that was um, Little Women, um, mm-hmm. Greta Gerwig's Little Women. I was watching and I'm like, wait a minute, how did she format that? I got the script. And I'm like, oh, she just used two different colors. You know, <laughs> Because I was, I was literally asking myself, every time we're jumping back and forth, is she using a transitional statement? And I'm like, no, in the beginning it says, red is in the past, black is in the present. And I'm like, no, of course that's what she did. But you know what I mean? Like when I can't immediately see it in script, right. that propels me to read movie scripts. Well, so, also because something like, you know, starting every transition with, now we're back in the present. Yes, return to scene, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, it's horrible. It disrupts the reading experience. And I know that, you know, people like to say scripts are blueprints for movies, which they are, but, but they also have to be a good reading experience. Yeah. No one's reading, whether you like his films or not, no one's scripts are better reading experiences than Quentin Tarantino's. Hmm. That is like, honestly, it's like reading a stage play to, to be perfectly honest. I mean, he just, Again, the dialogue just goes and goes and and goes. Or the, the only close equivalent I can think of was when I used when I was young, I used to read a lot of Stephen King books. And mm. Stephen King books have this habit of digressing. Mm. And yes. it, will, it will digress <laughs> for 10 chapters. Yes. And I was like, yeah, this is like a Stephen King book as a movie. And I love it. Like I just love going off on tangents with like the guy who was pumping gas. And, right. and then finally kind of like tying it right back into our, our main story. So anyway, sorry for rambling. No, yeah, no, that's, that's, what, that's what we're here for. By the way, yeah. you were digressing about digressing, which is uh, super, a, a super A digression meta. in itself. Yes. <laughs> very, very well done, sir. I, I grew up in New York and, um, you know, I grew up in, in predominantly um, black neighborhoods. And, and I didn't realize when I was young that a lot of the films that, were shown to me were not mainstream films. Um, and, and, and a lot of these films were really, really um, influential, you know, because it, it's so funny. People talk about how in recent years you're starting to see black films that are tackling issues of the day in a way that they have never had before. But the funny thing is I grew up and they were tackling issues of the day when I was five years old. It's just these were films that were not seen widespread but i so that to me it was like everyone i knew had seen these films and and a couple of them in particular really stood out one of them was a film a little film called cornbread earl and me right um and believe it or not it was um i i checked it was the first appearance of a young lawrence fishburne that is correct (laughs) so um and 
that was a film basically about police brutality. Um, the, for those who don't know, I mean, it's, it was it was 1975. So I was born in 1973. So the first time I saw Cornbread Earl and me was like my a relative sitting me in front of a TV saying, "You need to watch this film. This is an important film," and, and I and I enjoyed it. But but um, you know, it was basically a couple of kids. Lawrence Fishburne was the main character, and they looked up to this neighborhood basketball player played by Jamal Wilkes. Um, and he was like a star player who was obviously going to go on to college and go on to the NBA. And then one day um, after he was playing ball, he, he always did this thing where he was so fast he would run home. And one day it was raining and he's running home in the rain. And at the same time, um, a store nearby is being robbed. And the guy leaving the store is wearing a hood as is cornbread. And um, they cross each other and the police mistaking cornbread for the robber gun him down and um and that's kind of like where the movie begins because as opposed to trying to find out the truth of what happened which was a case of mistaken identity on the on the point on the part of the police they instead disparage this kid and make this kid out to be some kind of criminal which he is not and it's something that we have seen happen to black victims of police violence in the decades since then. And so when people like, honestly, when people are like shocked when these types of things happen, I'm like, not only has this been happening forever, people have been making movies about it. And these movies are kind of the types of things that like I was shown as a very little kid. So Cornbread Earl and me, um, you know, the intimidation of, of, a, of a child and you know, him, and Lawrence Fishburne's big, big moment in the film is just going into court and testifying. And his testifying doesn't even get the police in trouble. It's literally just getting the cops to say, we might have made a mistake. That's it. It's not like no one's going to pay for having shot down cornbread. All of this drama, all of these threats to the family, and the end result is just to get them to say, you know what, maybe we made a mistake. Maybe we were wrong about this kid. And that, that really resonated with me um, um, as a kid because, you know, that's pretty much, I grew up in the city, um, born in the 70s, but largely grew up in New York in the 80s. Um, and that's how we were seen, you know? I was that generation that had been branded super predators or, you know, or crack babies or all these other things that my entire generation was branded that, you know, made when things happen, like Bernard Getz, People celebrated, you know, right. him him shooting those kids in the subway, and, and and it's like it was only later they found out that Getz might have been a little off his rocker as well. A little so, bit, a <laughs> little bit. It's it's Cornbread Earl and Me really yeah. is it's a really seminal film for that reason. Another one. It's a multi great film. I know because I, uh, I I went back to it uh, a couple of years ago. I was um, and I apologize. Normally we hear we just plug your work, but. Uh, the second season of my audio drama Bronzeville uh, is, is oh. out there now, starring Lawrence Fishburne. Oh my God! And when we were doing the first season, I remember that came out on Blu-ray, and I had not seen it since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, this will be fun. And first of all, you're knocked out by how I mean, he's just a presence as a child. Yeah, you know, I know, a kid. You're like, yeah, like which of these children is going to go on to an amazing career? It's pretty obvious. Yeah. But it is so, you know, anything that. If, if you made it today, the changes you would make would be aesthetic. Yes, exactly. And, and that was such a, I remember we sort of went into it and I knew it was about, I remember, and I just didn't remember it being so 
sort of grim somehow and and uh like yeah let's watch fish in this movie as a kid that'll be fun and you're just you get to the end you're like oh my god it's 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 so much grimmer now in retrospect um that so many years have gone by and it's it's still that situation uh, but it's, it's yeah it's an incredible film and it is out there and you can you can see it um and uh i i recommend it as do you yeah, absolutely um, but, i recommend it um, yeah. And the other seminal film from my black seminal film from my childhood would be um, the education of Sonny Carson. Oh, which um, I know of. I've never have Joe. Have Joe no, I've seen that. that one. You've never seen it. Wow. Yeah, I I know of it. I've never seen it. Yeah, it was. Uh, that was yet another one where I was sat in front of a television, told you watch this. This is important. And um, Sonny Carson actually became a, a big presence in 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 New York and particularly Brooklyn as like a community organizer. But the film is just his childhood um, as a young kid um, affiliated with a gang, you know, and the trials and tribulations of, of that life. And until he kind of, you know, comes to his awakening um, at the, at the end of the film. And, and I guess it's just, it, it was, it's before there was that the urban genre that, that would come out decades later, there, there was really nothing else like it. And, and it just, it reflected, it reflected a vision, even though it was set years before, it reflected a vision of, of the city that was very, very familiar to me. So it, it, it was very much kind of like, this is, this is a warning. And it was just, it was just great cinema. The, the performances were really great. Um, I, I still have a copy of it on VHS, even though I don't even have a VHS player anymore. <laughs> it was things where you just kind of like, until I see proof, that it's going to come out on DVD, which I'm sure it has by now. Right? You don't want to let go of it. That's how it was with like um, the Richard Pryor movie, Jojo Dancer. It took so long for them to release it on DVD. Yes. I had like a VHS copy of it without having a VHS player anymore. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, the education of Sonny Carson was... Well, if you get really obsessive, you can bump those VHS to DVDs. And then, um, they'll, kid. <laughs> they'll still look terrible, but... <laughs> <laughs> but um, but believe it or not, my whole childhood wasn't just dark films. There were also some really um, lighthearted ones. And, and one of the top ones was probably The Goonies. Um, uh, I was, I mean, I'm, God, I'm, I'm not special in that I was a, a huge fan of, of that film. Though, it, I, 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 as I told you guys in the beginning, it, it only got on my list today because I felt a little, it would, I would have looked like a suck up if I put inner space on the list. Because <laughs> that, was the, that was another really, um, you know, big movie. Inner space was the first time I saw Martin short. Like I, I didn't know who oh, Martin wow. short was. So his, his brand of comedy was, um, was completely uh, new to me. I was like, who's this idiot in the movie with Dennis Quaid? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I knew Dennis Quaid, you know, and, um, and Martin short really, and and Robert Picardo in a in a great small <laughs> an incredible small part, um, and and it had a lot of the music of Sam Cooke, um, who you know I'm, I'm I literally just did a damn movie like Sam Sam <laughs> Cooke been a musical obsession of mine, and 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 he would every now and then make an appearance in films, and the two most prominent appearances of Sam Cooke musically in films before I literally made a movie with him in it were. Um, <laughs> Or um, inner space and um, Animal House, Animal, yeah, <laughs> where they play "It's a Wonderful World." <laughs> yeah. But you managed to get Joe managed to get um, both Cupid and Twist in the Night Away, which yeah, is, yeah. Well, it was 
there's no question about which which songs to use. I mean, that was yeah, and um, you know, uh, uh, another movie that uh, of these movies, one that I returned to a shockingly large amount of times. I'm I'm kind of amazed how much I watched this movie is on um, Point Break. Yes, I I the remake the remake of course right. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, no. The Catherine Bigelow, Keanu, Patrick Swayze. Yes, yes. I realize that if you use Patrick Swayze as a barometer, you don't go wrong very often. <laughs> like, that man had pretty fucking impeccable, either he had the best agent in Hollywood, or he had the most impeccable taste, because... We were watching Ghost the other day. We were watching Chu Wong Fu, you know, Roadhouse. Roadhouse, yeah. I, I mean, Dirty D. I'm like, Patrick Swayze, The Outsiders. It was like Patrick Swayze was, every actor should make decisions like Patrick Swayze made decisions about what kinds of films to be in because the diverse slate of films really kind of blows my mind. And um, in Point Break, I mean, he's the bad guy, but you love this dude. Like, you are so down with, like, Bodhi, even when he's doing some pretty reprehensible stuff. And as an action movie fan, that foot chase through the backyards of Los Angeles, uh, which, among many things, I think Swayze literally throws a pit bull at Keanu. Yes. (laughs) Among the many things he throws at him is he throws a damn pit bull and they, they do this to cut where you suddenly see Keanu with scratches on his face. And then you see his foot kick the dog in the ass off screen <laughs> as he continues the foot. That was like the best foot chase I, I had ever seen in my life. And the interesting thing about Point Break, it was one of two movies where I saw the commercial and was like, I don't want to see that bullshit. The commercial <laughs> was terrible. The commercial was like yeah. 100% pure adrenaline, 100% pure this, 100% pure that. And you see these guys skydiving and you go like, what? And then you see surfing and you're like, that's it. I'm out of here. Fuck this movie. (laughs) But then all it takes is one of your friends. And like, I remember one of my buddies at the time, my favorite action movie of all time was Die Hard. And a buddy of mine was like, this is Die Hard good. Like, (laughs) break. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It can't be Die Hard good. He's like, it's fucking Die Man. And he was like, remember how much we made fun of Die Hard when we saw the poster and yeah. said the guy from Moonlighting in an action movie? <laughs> it's like, that's how much you're going to freak out. When, and sure enough, man, I saw Point Break and I was like, yeah, this is fucking Die Hard good, man. Isn't that great? Isn't it great how it's transitioned? Because it came out, it didn't, it didn't do well. It didn't get great reviews. And yeah, I remember seeing it in an almost empty theater going, what, am I in an alternate universe? This is an amazing film. And just over time, people are finally starting to accept it. It's, it's, a, it's just a, such it's a name, man. I mean, yeah, so Keanu, Gary Busey, Lori Petty. I mean, uh, I don't, even, even Anthony Cadis from um, Red Hot yes. makes a little cameo. Yeah, he's great at it. He's and perfect. He played the villain in Cyborg. It's just like a bottomless... <laughs> of easter eggs from the eight. Oh man it's so well, you know you know what i love and i've we've talked about this a bit before but one of the things i love is especially in that era you've got uh, a football player turned fbi agent and you've got a sort of zen surfing dude kind of hangs out in southern california and you've got keanu reeves and patrick swayze 
and she cast them in the wrong parts. <laughs> but it's so perfect. It's yeah. like I can't even imagine that film if she had cast them in the right parts. I think it. But, but no, but that's, I mean, see, I don't. I disagree because Patrick Swayze is a natural leader. That's what it is. Is that like I, I don't know? Like he has a presence among that crew that just like. Yeah. And it's funny. I've never, I've, I never met Patrick Swayze when he was alive. But I got the impression watching movies that he wasn't a particularly big man. Um, I don't, I don't know how tall he was in in real life. Yeah, I don't think so. I think you're right. Whenever I would see, I was like, you know, like seeing him in Roadhouse next to Sam Elliott. I'm like, this guy is like he might be a smaller statured guy, but he has like just a really incredible presence. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a big Patrick Swayze fan. That movie is, is right up there. The, the other yeah, movie so that I saw a commercial of and was like, I'm never going to see that. And it ended up becoming one of my favorite films. It was actually um, Up, directed oh. by the doctor who I just directed um, Soul with. It's yeah. honestly <laughs> the movie that, you know, made me kind of feel like Pixar could do no wrong. Uh, I was like, really? You're going to make a kid's movie about a geriatric guy who ties some balloons to his house and tries to go to South America? I was like, <laughs> if, if this works, you guys are fucking geniuses. Like, I was just, a fan of Monsters, Inc. But Up, I just, obviously, like, every, everyone else who saw it, the first 10 minutes, I was crying in a movie theater. And then by the end, I was laughing out loud with that stupid talking dog, Doug. I mean, I, I now know I'm friends with Bob. I know all these guys now. So, you know, Bob Peterson, if you ever meet him, if you haven't met him, he is Doug the dog. Like Bob is, <laughs> Bob is always down for like doing voices. He's such a great, um, he, we actually, um, there, there's going to be some Doug shorts coming out on Disney plus. And I, I got to preview some of them and, and talk about just like fitting like a, a well-worn glove, like Bob just like jumped right back into the world of Doug. And it was like a day had passed by, but, um, but up really, um, it was audacious storytelling when it came to animation, particularly for like American animation, particularly from a company that while owned by Disney, felt so not of, of, of Disney. And in terms of, you know, not doesn't have to be a musical, you know, deviates a lot from, from the brand. And, and I just loved it. It's, it's remained um, like uh, of the Pixar canon when, when, when Pete reached out to me and was looking for someone to help him with soul, I mean, he, the reason I was so excited even before I knew what the project was is that Pete's really directly responsible in a big way for like four of my favorite um, Pixar films. That's, um, you know, he directed um, Monsters, Inc. and Up and Inside Out. And he was the writer of um, WALL-E. And the, the fifth film in that would be Ratatouille, Brad Bird's Ratatouille, yeah. which, I, which I also love. So I tend to like the slightly outside the border Pixar films. A, a lot more you know i like the ones that kind of toy around in the world of like french animation or heavily inspired by miyazaki you know wally being a silent film for the whole first act just really you know uh, and 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 so for me it was like making that film was i was it was like making a film but it was also like serving on an apprenticeship with one of your cinematic heroes at the same time you, you, you know, like for if you're not if you don't care about animation, that's fine. But but within the world of animation, working with Pete would have been like if Scorsese or Kubrick called up and said, I need help making a movie. 
like come 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 help make my movie help me make my movie it's like he's that it's a it's a shame that animation directing isn't respected more um in in by by the organizations that award that kind of stuff because i i do think pete is a genius and and up was what really kind of proved it for for me um, i think i think those movies um are responsible i i feel like that's changing you know um i feel like people are giving those films and the people who make them more respect than they did even 20 years ago and uh i think those films are why to a great extent yeah and like I mean, soul, we couldn't even pitch soul it was like no elevator <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Can't we, imagine. we didn't even try it got to a point where it was just like um you know we would so many of the things we were doing were so out there you know this idea of like oh let's let's try to subvert the idea of the hero getting his or her dreams and living happily ever after let's let's have them get what they want two-thirds of the way through the film and be dissatisfied by it because that's fucking real life and it's like who is going to say, yeah, families are going to want to sit through like, <laughs> but I think we actually succeeded. Yes. You know, like that was, but that was always the intent was like, yeah, he's got to get it and then be innately dissatisfied um, because it's not going to change who you are. It's not going to fix you. You know, we, we think these things fix us, which is why we're often able to throw ourselves into them so much, you know, almost as an escape. The concept right. of the lost soul was so elegant because we would always say that we saw ourselves as consistently as lost souls who came in and out of it because we would lose ourselves in our work. You know, we would hide in it. We would hide behind it. It was always a, a great way to like get away from facing the things we wanted to, we, we needed to face in our lives. So, um, you know, it was a, it was, it was, it was a different, it was a different kind of storytelling. So um, I'm really proud. Yeah. That's a, that's a really, trenchant point too. <laughs> what I don't want to think too hard about. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, my God, the first 10 minutes of up, um, as you say, it takes, it takes, well, about it's, a, it's, a, it's a short unto itself. I mean, there's yeah. no other movie. You'd still say, well, this is great. You know? Yeah. 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 That first 10 minutes was a big part of that was Ronnie Del Carmen was um, the, the, the story artist who I think it took Ronnie almost three years to really get that sequence right. I believe they didn't even show the first 10 minutes when they did a preview screening because it wasn't oh, really? done yet. So, oh, wow. yeah. So people really didn't get a, a preview of, of that, that first 10 minutes of the film. So, um, so yeah. Um, I love the idea of pitching that though. You know, it's like, well, the movie starts with the best 10 minute short you've ever seen in your life. And then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I always thought it was bizarre that they managed to, to get away with making the lead guy look like Spencer Tracy. <laughs> You know, I mean, it was so it was such an audacious idea. And, you know, it, and, and he's so taciturn and he's got and it's such an expressive yet blank face. Right. Uh, it's um, it's a pretty terrific movie. Yeah. yeah, it's so good. I love it. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Um, another, and, and then you talk about interesting storytelling. Uh, when I was young, 
on growing up in Brooklyn during summers, I would always get sent down to North Carolina for the summer when I was really young. Um, so when I was in North Carolina, I would often go to drive-in movies. Ah. My experience with drive-in movies. And, and I remember like, there was, it was always, usually it's a double feature. So in, in one of uh, my favorite, favorite double features we ever went to, um, the, the, the film on my list is the second film. First, the first film we saw was Van Nuys Boulevard, which is a, a <laughs> but after, after Van Nuys Boulevard, it was followed by um, The Road Warrior. Um, oh. by, by, wow. That, that's a... Shouldn't that have been the other way around? You would think, but... <laughs> but there was, I feel like whoever programmed that wasn't aware of what they were programming. <laughs> yep. Driving I know, it's a boulevard and a road. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> and The Road Warrior and George Miller. Mm. And you talk about telling a story. As a writer, you know you're 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 known as people assume like you you all you care about are words, but there is something about George Miller's ability to storytell using little to no words that is like it is really really something how silent his characters can be and how much story there can be through action. Um, and and, and the Road Warrior blue my socks off. I mean, I was just like, what the hell am I watching? And just like, feed this into my eyeballs forever. You, you know, yes. I, I didn't know <laughs> that it was a sequel. So I, I didn't know that there had been a Mad Max film before. I found out years later that, that it was a second. Um, and, and, I, and I mean, I, I love Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Um, I thought Mad Max Fury Road should have won Best Picture. The year that it was nom, I mean, I thought it was, it was the best experience I had in a movie theater, bar none. I thought that what George Miller did, everything from, I love, I love the fact that he's not even hemmed in by a genre, whether it's Happy Feet or Babe. Babe, you know? yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, I am just like, uh, you have to call me a George Miller stan because uh, that guy is. That guy is God, or or Lorenzo's Oil, which is the kind of movie that you couldn't pay me to watch normally. It's like the parents of a sick kid decide. I mean, just an amazing, amazing movie. Yeah, he's a Road Warrior. I mean, what they were wearing, man. I mean, dudes are wearing hockey masks and cock rings. You know, like the, <laughs> the Lord Humongous to the yes. just walk away, just <laughs> just walk away in the oh my. God, the kid with the the feral kid, with the goddamn yeah. razor spring. I, uh, I mean the 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 naming. Uh, you, none of the characters you learn the characters' names in the credits because no right. one <laughs> says anyone's name. So you kind of look at the credits in these movies and you go like, these are incredible names, and you never <laughs> hear them out loud in the film. I mean, yeah. in the first Mad Max, yes, you know, of course, like you know, toe cutter, you know, they, because it wasn't quite as post, it wasn't post-apocalyptic yet, but I, I just had such a kick reading the names of the characters um, in, in that scrawl at the end. Cause I'm just like, Rockatansky, like what, his <laughs> last, like his last name, it just nothing, nothing made sense. Um, and um, yeah, so the road warrior was a, 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 a seminal experience for me in the drive-in and the introduction to, George Miller's unique brand of storytelling um, that, that really stuck with me 
Um, another thing for me, I'm, I've always been a um, huge, huge fan of Westerns. And um, God, all, all from old West, but, but I have to say that like Unforgiven oh, yeah. was, um, was really something for me. Like that was just like the idea of taking, no coincidence, taking icons, something as iconic as gunfighters and just kind of stripping it down and showing that like all the sexiness, all, all the things you think you know about it are just, are just wrong, Man. you know? And, and Gene Hackman's little bill character is just while ostensibly a good guy is such a fucking bully. He's so reprehensible, you know, he's, he's almost smug, you know, it, it, yeah. he, uh, there's, there's, Oh man. Like I, I really, really love, I remember watching Unforgiven um, and, and just, just really thinking like, man, I, I've never, and, and again, there's some Westerns I like don't aren't as successful. I'm a big fan of the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Bob Ford. Um, I'm a huge fan of that film. I thought that like, man, you talk about like toxic fanhood, you know, brought to life. <laughs> um, and, and, and I'm a huge Sam Shepard fan. And I thought that like, even though Sam Shepard has such a small part as Frank James, I just, I just love Sam Shepard on screen. Yeah. Man. Yeah. As, as brilliant as he was a writer, he was also a pretty goddamn brilliant actor too. Yeah. And, um, and I just love seeing him on screen whenever he was. Um, and, you know, I was a huge fan like everyone else of Tombstone with Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer and, and, and you know, and I just, but, but Unforgiven is, is just like a high watermark of, of Westerns for me. Yeah. Well, that was such a game changer because it did, it kind of brought the genre back for, for a minute or two at least. Yeah. And there was, you know, I remember cause there were a lot of good films that I, that came after, but I, I did, I have a very soft spot in my heart for Tombstone because it feels like it was the only Western that came out after Unforgiven that had the courage to act like Unforgiven never happened. You know what I mean? Every other film was a sort of serious, you know, elegiac study of the loss of a, and Tombstone was just like, I'll meet you out at high noon. I'm going to shoot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that was it. And it was just, it was great fun. Oh, I know. <laughs> Tell them how coming with me. <laughs> and I remember that the, the, the great lesson for me for Unforgiven was, because uh, I saw it twice in a weekend, on opening weekend, both, both at the, the Chinese. And remember, the, there's a scene where the guy gets shot in the outhouse. Yes. And I remember both times, but the first time it annoyed me, there were about like five guys in the audience going, yeah. And I'm sitting there going, you idiot. That's, you're not, that's not, you're not supposed to cheer that. Right. And the second time I saw it, I was like, well, that's why this movie's going to make $12 billion. Because <laughs> you're not supposed to cheer that, but it gives those people things to cheer at. So they're going to have a good time. And then, you know, the rest of us are sitting there having a hard time. It sort of yeah. hits all the different levels, but yeah, I mean, whatever you might think about Clint Eastwood and his politics, I gotta say, like he, when I look at filmmakers and the subject matter they choose to tackle, I'm really such a tremendous fan. Like I was watching Invictus the other day, mm -hmm. uh, Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon. And it's a really good film. Like I was, I was like, oh man, this is really, really a powerful film. Just about there was a choice that needed to be made post apartheid. And, and this idea of like, we, we gotta forgive in order to move forward. Um, I mean, shit, I even liked his Jersey Boys movie. Like, I, I just like, what, what guy's gonna be like, you know what, this is a good musical. Fuck it, I'll make a movie of it. Like, <laughs> some really, you know, has, has quite a great, I mean, and then sometimes it like 
falls into the absurd. Like he was so get off my lawn in Gran Torino, you know? <laughs> and then the mule almost seemed like he was making fun of himself. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's weird because the, the creative impulses and then the political ones with him seem so diametrically opposed in so many, but yeah. then as you say, Gran Torino, they're very much in sync. Yeah. But, you know, even going back, I mean, bird. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, I just watched again the, the Beguiled, which is such an amazing film. And that, like, he was just coming into his own as a major movie star, and he decides to make that movie. Yeah, you know? I mean, Richard Jewell wasn't bad. Um, I, I know it didn't do well, but I, but I enjoyed. But yeah, I, I like really. There, there's something to people who just like they make the movies they want to make. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it helps when you have a studio behind you. Of course, you know, I mean, he's he's got. I mean, there's he's sort of got a, the kind of deal Kubrick had, which is like you know, well, you just go make your movies and and except in Clint's position, it's like well, and give us one for us, and then you can go and make right. two for you. Yeah, uh, and and so he does, and so it's it's been a very uneven, you know, output. I mean, there's yeah, you there, get pink Cadillac, I get Unforgiven. Yes. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, but but he makes them so fast because he's so yeah. decisive yeah. that they come in under budget. And it's always a bargain for them. Really? You know, I, I heard someone, I won't say who, someone said that about um, Michael Bay, uh, like that people don't realize that as action directors go, he's always under budget. Oh, and really? like, like a Michael Bay movie made by anyone else would be like twice as much money. <laughs> so, <laughs> Something to be said for that. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, Clint's thing too is that he's so locked into the script, um, yeah. you know, and, and to the extent I spoke to somebody a few years ago who wrote a movie that he had directed who was really frustrated because they wanted to do some rewrites on it because they had issues with it that, you know, they'd written the script and it sold and now they're looking at it going, oh, that scene doesn't work. And Clint's like, nah, it's great. And they're like, I will rewrite this for free. He's like, nah, we're shooting it. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, haven't worked with him, but... All I know is the films that I've seen, and yeah, and definitely earned, earned its on. on yeah, God, I think of like letters from Iwo Jima. You know, the fact that he would make that film—it's such an interesting. Yeah, yeah. Remember Heartbreak Ridge? Sure, sure. <laughs> A movie about Grenada. Yeah, is that the only <laughs> Grenada War movie? I think it's. Well, it was only four and a half minutes long, so you're not going to get a lot of. <laughs> Well, it is an it is an interesting filmography for sure. <laughs> it is wild, yeah, yeah. And I st- and still even playing with his image. I still remember seeing for some reason I was in uh, a theater in in um, uh, I think South Philly. I grew up in Philly, and uh, with my dad we would see Tightrope. And there's a scene I remember. He's in New Orleans, and this flagrantly gay guy sitting next to him at a bar and starts hitting on him. And Clint goes, "Fuck off!" And the guy goes. How do you know you won't like it until you've tried it? And Clint looks at him, Clint Eastwood, king of all men, especially at this point in his career. He turns to the guy and goes, how do you know I haven't? And I heard, <laughs> I heard men in the audience scream. <laughs> and he was just like, I don't give a fuck. I'll do that line. It doesn't hurt me. <laughs> that's great. So yeah, that's, that's, I think that's my list. I think oh, you were going to, didn't you have, uh, uh, I don't want to, I'm not going to guide you. There was, uh, there was, uh, I think I hit him all right. You're prodding him. Why I know I'm prodding, prodding him because there's <laughs> one I wanted to hear him talk about. Well, just tell him. Five, five heartbeats. Oh, the, oh, right, right. The five heartbeats. Oh man. I'm sorry. I <laughs> you like the five heartbeats? Oh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? Yeah. I first, I mean, I'm a huge, I mean, Robert, I, I was, I was torn between the five heartbeats and Hollywood shuffle. Mm. I mean, 
Hollywood Shuffle, Robert Townsend's first film. You talk once again. You talk about like if Cornbread Early Me could have been made like today when it comes to certain things. You could probably say the same thing for Hollywood Shuffle when it comes to being black in Hollywood. Just being a black creative. Things, of course, have gotten better, but it's still you know the, uh, a lot of the same kind of absurd, ridiculous things happen. But but I love. I'll always love that film. But the Five Heartbeats. Just um, look. I love music. And I, and I love films about uh, musicians. And if you're if you're not going to be able to quite literally do the Temptations movie, and you're going to do like a a rough facsimile of a group that kind of resembles the Temptations and kind of goes through trials and tribulations similar to it, I I thought the Five Heartbeats did such an amazing job. Not just because of the caliber of the actors, but they had to create original music that was still catchy. Would pass, yeah. You do. With Because uh, when I say a Temptation-style group, I mean a group that their music changes decade to decade, you know? And that's what happened with the Five Heartbeats. In the beginning, they're almost like a doo-wop group. Yeah. But you go through these different epochs, and you and the music evolves with them. And the music is always pretty damn catchy and pretty damn good. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, I just I, I remember just really, really, I've always really enjoyed it. Someone recently told me, there was actually a documentary made about the making of the five heartbeats. That's supposed to be really good, really heartwarming. I'm going to try to get a hold of that and, and see it because, um, but, but yeah, it's one of a, a a double, a a, a double feature from Robert Townsend that I would never say no to watching on, on any um, given day. And, and again, the five heartbeats accomplishes in one film, with the Temptations took like a week long mini series to accomplish. Right. So the art- but he had the advantage. I mean, he's, he's talking about this of, of, you know, the great, like, I think he started out wanting to do, you know, the temps or the four tops or something, but realizing that you could do much better by taking all these stories from all these different groups and putting them into one fictional one, you can get away with it. You know, it's a lot more dramatic and cinematic. Well, uh, Dream Girls, Dream Girls is a great example. I mean, Dream, it, yeah. obviously Barry Gordy and Diana Ross. Right. Um, but, you know, you're able to have a lot more fun um, if, as long as you come up with the great music to, to accompany that. Yeah. It, it's believable that people would be going wild and these people would be going on this roller coaster of fame and fortune. It, the music has to measure up. And yeah. that's, that's the part where films that try to do it um, often, often fall short. Yeah, for sure, for sure. The um, uh, and I, I, I tell me if you think that I think things have gotten a bit better in this sense. I remember also him talking at the time about because the film wasn't a huge hit. He said part of the problem was the studio had no idea what to do with it. They just thought there was a black audience, so they put the Five Heartbeats trailer at the beginning of New Jack City, mm. without understanding that they're two completely different audiences for these films. You know, because well, well, I mean, I saw them both for what it's right. worth. No, no, you sure, yeah, but, but, but the sort of the core audience would be like yeah, sort of yeah. boomers for the five heartbeats, and then sure, sort of sure. and and the studio is just like I don't know, it's black people, right? And I feel like there's a little more nuance in that. Actually, film. if you go to a before COVID hit, if you would have gone to a film in the theater with a predominantly black cast, yeah, you would get hit with everything black. Really? Okay. So it's still that 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 element of it hasn't really changed that much. It's actually kind of gotten almost like heartwarmingly comical. The fact <laughs> like they have nothing to do with each other except the fact that there's a black person in the lead are all in the trailer. So you'll yeah, sometimes you'll be like, really? You're gonna have a trailer? You'll be in a kids movie. 
that, and, and you'll see like basically the equivalent of New Jack City. And and you just go, but we anyway, it's a so like they'd be showing get out before soul. Is that yeah, basically <laughs> they, they, that's the way people would program it. And you would just feel like it, it's 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 been that way for so long that you you can't help. Like you're you're gonna get all your comedies, you know, like lined up. And it doesn't matter if they're R-rated comedies and a G-rated, it doesn't matter. If if they're black, they just like we'll we'll pile them all on I'm top all in. Uh, I, I, I was I was preferring my delusion. It made me think yeah. the world was getting better. <laughs> now I laugh about it because I'm just like, yeah. all right, I'm about to find out all the black movies coming out <laughs> in one fell preview swoop, <laughs> and then a trailer for like a big Marvel movie. Right. <laughs> like you know, because everyone loves those. One or you know, a great one is Fast and the Furious because you can put that in front of a, any group, and yes. everyone's got someone up there that they're like, all right. I'll go see that. Like it's it's universal. Well, that's the Rainbow Coalition casting. That's right. Yeah, really it. <laughs> Very effective. Yeah. Although I I'm still holding out. There need to be there needs to be a pudgy middle aged white guy in those movies because I'm uh, <laughs> I refuse to go to any more of them until I see myself. God damn it. <laughs> well, he's usually the villain, or, uh, well, or or the handler, the guy who's like works for the government, right. yeah. who's like Toretto. We need your help. Right, <laughs> a group of illegal street racers to infiltrate an international cartel and like steal a nuke. Boy, you see, you can tell this guy's a writer. <laughs> <laughs> You've come a long way since LA street racing, Dominic. <laughs> Isn't it though? You, you wonder about like the just the psychic cost of that man of all that he has seen and done. Yeah, they should do Fast and Furious versus Mission Impossible. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see Tom Cruise running, running yes. with Dominic Toretto trying to run him over. <laughs> he can't hit him. Like Tom Cruise runs so well, so upright that every time Toretto's about to run him down, Tom Cruise cuts a corner, and it's just like, oh man, it would be so great. He's like, I can't run this fucking white guy over, and it's like, Bing Rames is in the van, like make a right on this street. It's oh, that'd be so great. You know, somebody's going to be pitching that next week. I was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm cutting that and I'm going to pitch it. I wanted to remind him that everything he says here is the property of the movies that made me. So <laughs> that is a fantastic idea. I'm in. I'm in. Uh, well, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Great Kim. to meet you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. For and coming. good luck in the uh, award season. Yes. And, and you know, well, I'm honestly, dude, I'm so happy that these films got seen. I mean, this has been a weird fucking year. Especially this year. Right? So, um, I'm happy they were able to get out, and I'm looking forward to the, hopefully, seeing the, one or both of them with an audience one day, because I still have them. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's yeah. Really we missed that. Yeah, we, I'm looking forward to the movie theaters coming back. Really Very much so, yeah. I, I have a feeling you'll be able to, I, I, can, I can see scenarios where both of those are showing for a while at, uh, um, you know, there'll be, there'll be, there's always a repertory screening of like Pixar films. And I think one night Miami is the kind of thing that's going to be a perennial at, um, at, uh, repertory theaters. It's, it's so good. It's so good. Thank you. Thank you very much. But, um, yeah, well, thank you. Uh, we'll, we'll leave you to go back to your, um, to your, uh, you know, the same question over and over and over again. Yeah. Your junket. <laughs> your junket. Yes. What inspired you? Uh, <laughs> But thank you, and, and best of luck, man. Um, richly deserved knowledge.
Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Stay safe out there, folks. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.